Hello and welcome to The Politics of Peterborough, the podcast where we chat to the people who have been elected to make decisions about our city and those who try to influence them. I'm your host, Dave Adcock. Next month on the podcast, I'll be joined by Conservative Cabinet Member for Legal, Finance and Corporate Services, Councillor Andy Coles. If you have any questions you'd like me to put to him, or any suggestions as to who you'd like to listen to on a future episode of the podcast, you can get in touch via Twitter or Facebook at politicspboro, or send an email to politics.peterborough at hotmail.com. On with the show. Our guest for this episode was first elected to the council in 2019 in the Hargate and Hempstead ward for the Conservatives. In 2022, he was appointed by Councillor Fitzgerald to the cabinet with the portfolio of adult services and public health. In May of 2023, he was re-elected, more than doubling his majority, before a month later became the last of seven councillors to leave the Conservatives and then go on to join the Peterborough First Group. Councillor John Howard, welcome to the politics of Peterborough. Good morning. Thanks for having me along. So let's start with your Peterborough story. Um, were you born in the city? No, Jim, my family, um, I was born in Essex, um, and my mum's family and dad's family were both from Essex. What's really odd, and I'll never know the full story to this, Dave, is that the whole sort of both sets of families migrated to Peterborough at a similar time. So I don't know if we fell out with someone in Essex, we might find out if they're listening to this. But yeah, so from the age of two, I've, I've so for my living memory, I've always been in Peaceborough, moved around quite a bit, but ended up in Hampton, sort of, core crikey, uh, probably sort of early 2000s. Um, you know, and love, loved the community, loved where I live, and it was at that point I started to think, well, you know, what can I do within the community, really, which is what got the ball rolling. Did you grow up in a particularly political household? Um, well, my mum and dad were always conservative voters, um, probably still are. <laughs> So, yeah, so I suppose, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't call us not an overly political household. You know, they didn't, they weren't party members. But, you know, it, it came it came up on the dinner table a few times over the years. Um, and I think I sort of followed that that thinking, really. So what was it about the, the Conservatives that drew you in that political direction? Was it kind of just because your parents were that way or was there something specific about them? Do you know, it's, uh, politics is a funny thing because it's it's almost like a football team, isn't it? I think if you, you know, if you support Manchester United or support Chelsea, it's very inherent, isn't it? And, you you know, whether they win or lose, you believe in it, don't you? You know, and you're passionate about it. Um, and I think, yeah, for, for me, I always thought uh, politically they're, they're more sensible with money. Um, I don't know at the moment people listen to this think it's a bit different now and I'd agree with you but yeah generally I I just thought they were better at the till and and you know probably offered more opportunity but as I say I think over the years those things are starting to perhaps those values are starting to change for them. Before being elected to the city council you were elected to the Hampton Parish Council how have you found that experience? That was brilliant. That was brilliant. And and to be honest, I only gave it up because this, being a council, sort of city council, took up so much time. Um, because in all honesty, given a choice, I, I'd have carried on with that. Uh, a brilliant apprenticeship. I mean, I must say, for anyone who's, who's politically interested, um, and if you don't necessarily have a political bed to lay in, it doesn't really matter. You know, if as a parish, you, you're very fortunate, go and visit you know, even just experience the meetings. There's some really, really good caring people in those setups who are just doing it, you know, like we all are really, just for the for the better of their area. Um, so it was brilliant for me because it was, a, yeah, it was a good apprenticeship for meetings, you know, debate. So yeah, a, a really good way to get started. Are you able to kind of explain what 
things they actually cover? So obviously the council, we know the kind of things that they look after, but what, what is it that the parish council kind of cover? Yeah, the parish, I mean, the parish is definitely more bespoke, and I think it's also different for different areas as well. Um, so for Hampton itself, we, we sort of funded um, two Lenthsmen in the area to go around. So we did a, a partnership with Aragon for that. So we've got two sort of, per, you know, sort of litter pickers directly in the area funded by the parish, you know, which is very unusual. You know, and if you live somewhere without a parish, you're not able to get that sort of bespoke treatment, you know. And we had a, a PES officer as well that we employed ourselves funded through the parish. Um, and it's useful for just funding like community events and festivals. So yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of parishes, I must admit. I think our, our one has done some good over the years. What was it made you decide to go for the seat that was being vacated by Councillor Howard Fuller? Were you, were you approached or did you apply? Yeah, it was an interesting thing. So when I started um, in the parish, I wasn't an active Conservative. I was just a Hampton resident um, representing the parish, you know. So, but yeah, I mean, to be fair, I will credit Marco Ceres for this because on the Hampton, fa- Hampton Facebook pages are very active. Um, and, you know, I was quite active on them, in fairness, you know, doing comments and different things. And Marco just messaged me one day and said, well, you know, you're coming up with all these things and challenging me. Why don't you stand? So in all fairness to him, you know, he met me and sort of talked me through it. Um, and then I, I sort of helped um, at that time, I helped Farouk with his election because it, it, this was crikey. 2018, I think, if I remember right. Yeah, you're nodding, so that's fine. <laughs> I got the years right. <laughs> Seems so long ago. So, you know, I helped Farouk a little bit with his campaign, and then the next year the seat come up. Yeah, and it just it just made sense. It was a good opportunity. I had a really good relationship with, um, you know, the late Janet Goodwin now and, and Farouk. They just seemed really good people, and, and yeah, I was quite happy to, to form part of that team. I must admit, it's one of those things, I think a lot of it is based on who's around you at the time. Because it might be, you know, with different people, I might not have made that next step, if that makes sense. But I think Farouk and Janet were really supportive and really good people to sort of, you know, carry on my apprenticeship from the parish. Now, as I said in the intro, you were first elected to the council in 2019. Um, It was quite a narrow margin of 47 votes. Did you go into the count feeling fairly confident? No, (laughs) no, in all truth, that was a horrendous evening. That was a horrendous evening. I was up against, um, yeah, my my biggest competitor was uh, Kevin Ty for the Liberal Democrats. Yeah, 2019, it was a really bad year because it was the the sort of Brexit debate year. And, you know, for my first year knocking on doors, it was truly awful. You know, I I must admit, there was was doors I knocked on where people just screamed blue murder at me because of Brexit. Um, I was chased down the road by dogs like settled me from a household like you honestly some of the stories some of the stories and I have to say like when people knock on the door like you know you're the other side of the door we never know what sort of day you're having and and that works both ways as well sometimes so you know there are some really tough tough times on the door Uh, plenty of times where I did think goodness me you know is this even is this even because we didn't we didn't get to talk about local issues we were talking about national like brexit and brexit was was just everywhere and it was such a hot topic but it was a real shame for me because i wanted to talk about like you know local work what i've been doing in the parish um but everyone else wanted to talk about you know the the bigger stuff as such i suppose the national stuff so yeah it was really tough and even that night at the count it was so so close my heart was was racing. I'm I'm very I'm very fortunate that one councillor who was who was there that night just said to me, John, you just need to breathe, and uh, that was probably the best advice I had because I probably would have killed over otherwise. But Kevin, Kevin was very good. I mean, he was very you know he he was a very experienced and credible candidate. Um, so to get past him 
meant a lot. But he, he was very good as well. He was very sort of humble in his, you know, and, and he was probably as surprised as I was maybe at some point. But yeah, a good result. And has the role met your expectations? Did you kind of have an understanding of, of what it might entail when you went into it or has it surprised you? Yeah, I would say it, it has definitely surprised me. It surprised me how in, how in depth it is. Because being a counsellor isn't a full-time job, which I think the public perception of it is that it is a full-time job. But, you know, I, like there is an allowance, which, you know, we're very fortunate, but it's not a, it's not a full-time living as such. So, so most people who do it probably have a job, a business, or, you know, if they're fortunate to be retired, that's brilliant. But, you know, most people have another life as, as well as representing their ward. Um, so the the sort of the time it took really really did surprise me, um, m- yeah more than I expected. You know, and you get a message. You could get a message ten o'clock at night, ten o'clock in the morning. You still have to answer it. You know, because you're there to provide the service. But yeah, it it's really surprised me because as well as the you know the you you see the sort of the council meetings, but there's also quite a lot of scrutiny committees as well, and some of those are broadcast live. But, you know, that takes up time as well because you have to read those papers and prepare questions for those, and let alone the, the sort of resident stuff coming in as well. And, of course, that's like... Um, that's not manageable because you couldn't say I'll allocate two hours a day because you might not have any issues for a week and then find the next week everyone suddenly has a problem that needs your help. So... Yeah, so, uh, and time management has never been my strongest skill either, so it's been a, yeah, something I've had to brush up on very quickly the last few years. Do you think the fact that it isn't a, a full-time role limits who could put themselves forward? Yeah, definitely, definitely, because I think, and you know, you see it nationally as well as locally, you know, I think people look at MPs and think, why are they of a certain, you know, typically, um, I don't want to be rude, of a t- typically of a certain age? Or why are they self-made people? You know, like everyone says about our Prime Minister, he's a billionaire, he's a billionaire, you know, he's done this and that. Well, in all truth, you know, unless you've, you know, the reality, brutal reality is unless you've got to that position in your life, you probably can't afford to to do it or stand. And being a local councillor is really the same in the sense that, you know, you, you, you have to make your living as well as, which is why locally you find maybe typically there's a certain demographic of age or of average age shall we say or it's typically a person who's self-made if that's the right way of putting it or retired you know there, there could be a really long debate about this because one argument is well could those people be paid properly to give it a full-time job and how much difference would that make and what sort of person would we get it's always a very difficult argument because I think the public would go, well, no, that's not what we want. We don't want to pay people, any politicians any more money. And I can understand that. But the other part of me thinks, well, how good would it be if someone like, say, Richard Branson, you know, went on to create Virgin? But equally, if, if the pay was different, he may have gone into being an MP. And how amazing would that have been? You know, so we need, we need a mixture of people. We need people with, you know, people who've had hard experiences, tough experiences, because they they massively have something to contribute to, to what goes on politically. But also, wouldn't it be amazing to get some of those like, really exciting people into it as well who can, you know, because with such a mix, it makes such a difference to politics. So, so I, would, I, I would like to see it pay enough where people could justify it. But at the same time, I do realise the public perception of that would, would probably not quite ready. But the day would be interesting. <laughs> Do you think the, the public get the politicians that they pay for at the end of the day? Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, yes and no, because yes and no, because 
you know, you, when someone's elected, the political party doesn't make someone good or bad. I would say that. You know, I've I've been lucky to have political friends from all across different parties, and we wouldn't admit to it all the time, especially at elections. But, you know, there is some really good people. But I think when you elect someone, I think regardless of the income or not, I think their own actions determines whether you get a good politician or not. Um, you know, and I, I'm probably biased when I talk about being fruit locally, but I think, you know, we put an awful lot into the area. We really work hard on it. You know, we every day's election day for us. You know, that's how we take it. But you could arguably also vote someone in who perhaps has a full-time job, maybe isn't told by their party how much is involved in it. You know, that probably happens sometimes, in fairness. So it's not always, it's not even sometimes the, the councillor or politician's fault. You know, it might not be that they've had a full, a full explanation of what's involved. So, yeah, I think it's as good or bad as the person and their actions. After the May 2022 elections, you were appointed to the Cabinet with the portfolio of adult services and public health. How big a change was that for you from just being a councillor? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was quite something. It was quite something. I, I'd had So the year before, I'd been a Cabinet advisor to um, Councillor Allen in um, you know, housing and communities. That, that was quite a good apprenticeship, you know, because you got to see like cabinet level decisions and officer meetings. Um, but to be honest, and I will say this, is that that portfolio I was not familiar with when, when I was given it. I was, I was very honoured that the leader trusted me with, some, with, a, with such a big portfolio um, because I, unfortunately for me, I hadn't ever been on the scrutiny for adults and health. So I came into it very you know, very sort of open-eyed. The officers, I have to give credit to the council officers because when I was appointed, I emailed them all and I was quite honest and said, look, this is new ground for me. You know, I I really need to learn from you before I can help you. Um, But I have to say the officers were absolutely fantastic. They sort of, they picked up on the fact that I liked sort of doing things rather than reading things. So, you know, they got me into the, the local sort of adults reablement team you know, just to see how everyone works. And, and that was just amazing for me. It was the best way to learn. But my, yeah, a really, really tough portfolio. I mean, when, when we say um, a council, a full-time job, a cabinet member, if you have a portfolio like that, if it's a heavy one, it's probably full-time job plus. It really is. But uh, yeah, I, I was very lucky with the induction. But I think, to be honest, I'd still be learning now if I was still in that position. Like, it's such a big portfolio. So Yes, I never felt I I probably had a a bit more time to go to get my teeth into it fully, I'd say. As a member of the ruling party for the last four years and one of those sitting at the top table for the last of those, would you say that Peterborough has been well run by the council during that time? That's a great question, isn't it? Well, how do you you answer that? I think think best intentions are there. You know, and if you look at some of the um, acknowledgements we've had, you know, we've had, um, you know, we were nominated for for most improved council. You know, we're we're under under an awful lot of scrutiny the last few years with the improvement panel and so on. But I think, yeah, I mean, in fairness, I think the administration has, has sort of has carried itself well. It's a very challenging situation. I mean, you know, we are, when you consider we've got almost half a billion pounds worth of borrowing now, um, which I think we're any day away from that figure in all honesty, it's scary, scary stuff. You know, so it's a, there's an awful lot of work to do. But I would say at the same time is that it's the the public perception of some of our actions as well and how they're communicated. You know, there are some decisions that you can't change. 
you know, but you can at least change the staging of them and the public's understanding of them when these things happen. And I think, you know, and I, th- I, th- I think to be honest, if you ask anyone in the administration, if they're being quite frank, they would admit to that as well. Um, you know, if you look at things like, for instance, how the key theatre announcement was made, um, you know, could we have changed that decision? Probably not, but could we have could we have put it in a much more fair and transparent way? Yeah, absolutely. But I think if you ask anyone in, in, in the administration, I, I think if I'd been honest, they'd agree with that and say there's some things that happen that just aren't presented in, in quite the right way. doesn't change the decision, of course, but I, th- I think, you know, for the public to really understand what's going on, sometimes it just wouldn't hurt to just tell them a little bit more so they know what's going on too. What would you say are the particular successes of the council during your time with the Conservatives? Uh, for the party itself, I suppose, um, I, I think, looking at the, the, the government funding that's come through. So, you know, we've got an awful lot of funding through um, the combined authority, you know, through the levelling up fund. And I think that's been a big, big achievement. And I think, you know, although, <laughs> although myself and the local MP have probably crossed swords a few times recently, you know, at the same time, I can acknowledge that, He's played a part in that. The command authority have also played a part in that as well. I think sometimes how we orientate these successes are sort of, it's branded as a as a, a conservative win, shall I say. But we have to remember that we have a Labour mayor in the command authority at the moment. That could change. It could be any party really come next time. But I think sometimes we, we can be a bit humble and acknowledge the fact that, yes, it's a, it's a conservative administration, it's a conservative government, and that's how that funding has come through. But the combined authority have had a bit to play as well. And of course, sometimes we can acknowledge the fact that even though he's a different political persuasion to the administration, that, you know, if it's not for that cross working, that money wouldn't have come all the way through as well. So I think that needs acknowledging more than it probably has been. Shortly after you were appointed to the cabinet, the decision was made to permanently close St George's hydrotherapy pool. Uh, firstly, how did you vote on that decision? Yeah, that's that's another decision. I mean, going back to what we said a few minutes ago, that is another decision that could have been um, publicly, dis- you know, we, we could have told that story so much better than we did. And uh, yeah, I mean, I supported this decision to close it on the basis of what we were assured at the time. And what we were assured at the time was that, um, you know, basically the land had to go to the school. The school had a, a desperate need for, for the, the plot it sits on. Which, you know, again, kind of makes sense if you take that in isolation. But my concern was there was, you know, over over that period of time, the reason and the actions changed very quickly on why we were doing it. You know, it started as um, an officer saying, a, a new officer who came in and just said, look, you just can't sell it for that money. It's as simple as that. You know, can't be done. Okay, well, you know, because of the financial position we're in, if that's what we're being told you have to be reasonable and say, okay, well, if I'm being told that by a senior officer, then must, it must make sense. There must be a reason for it. But then the reason sort of elaborated to the fact that the school needed the, the space. So, you know, so it was a very fluid um, situation. And I think, you know, it's a very difficult one publicly because I think end of the day, the, you know, it's a service the council have provided. So I think for the public, they kind of expect to still see it there. You know, because we've always done it, why shouldn't we do it now? And I, and I do understand it's a very emo- emotive subject. But, you know, it should be provided by the local health authority, which it isn't. Um, you know, so that that is one issue with it. The other issue we have with it, which I think we could do better at, is to help. There are providers in Peaceborough who want to provide hydrotherapy. Um, and we promised at, 
at a cabinet meeting, which is some, which is one of the reasons I did support the decision. We promised that uh, you know a certain um, body we would help them find land so that they could set up a hydrotherapy pool. And I think that relationship has deteriorated. And I think that's a real great shame because how I see it is as an administration, if there's something we can't do like that, we should be honest about the fact that we can't do it. We should tell the public why. But also, if it's not directly in our remit to do it, fine. But let's help people who perhaps want to play a part in the city and want to you know, provide these solutions instead of us. But if there's someone who wants to do that for a council that is, you know, struggling financially, then why shouldn't we help those people and support those people? And to me, that's probably the biggest fad in, in that, you know, we should, you know, if there's people who want help to try and set up, we should help them, you know, within the boundaries of what we could do, we should help and support as much as we can. And I think that's why the public have probably got cross because I think that part of the bargain hasn't been done yet. Were you given a free vote on that or were you whipped to vote in a certain way? Now, that's a very good question. I can't, I can't honestly recall. Um, I think what I would say is most of the time in Cabinet, there isn't strictly a whip. I think it is more sort of Cabinet collective responsibility. And I, what, you, what there is, there's, there's the Cabinet meeting itself, where, which is public and it's voted on, you know, and it's minuted. And we have Cabinet policy forum as well, which is something that is a you know, is, is done sort of every week in between normally, very informal, you know, and it's there is still an agenda. But with that, that's the chance to really air on, you know, our concerns, issues. Um, and that always flows perhaps more than the public meeting because, you know, it's a safe space. It's not minuted. So, you know, with issues like this, a lot of discussion goes on in those environments. You know, so by the time we get to the Cabinet meeting, We've probably already gone through that test, you know, especially when it comes to things like this. And I think at the time we were probably assured that we'd try and find land for people or help, you know, help partner up to find land for people who, who want to provide the service. And I think that's the bit where it's really gone wrong. With what you know now and how things are at the moment and obviously your new political situation, would you have voted differently if it was taking place now with what you know Oh, yeah, I think I would. I think I would. That's a, that's a brutal question. <laughs> I like it. I'll be asking the same. Uh, yes, I would. Yes, I would. Because to be honest, we haven't, we haven't fully completed the, the bit of the bargain that we said we would do. And, I, you know, what I would say is, it, you know, maybe it will still happen. It needs to happen. And I think, you know, that final part of the bargain that we promised in that meeting, you know, there is still a need to deliver that. I mean, is this a case of the council having a short-sighted approach so it's saving however much money that it's costing to do it year on year but is going to end up paying back multiple times that amount in the health issues for those people that are no longer able to use the service? Yeah, I think that's a fair argument. And, and to be honest, you can, and you know, really difficult because there's a lot of council decisions where the same argument could be made. You know, we we want... You want people to, to, to live longer in a healthier way, you know, and, and be, you know, more financially well off, you know. And if you could do all those things, then for most people in the city, you'd probably say, well, yes, I can see sense in that. That's what I would want too. Um, so all these decisions have a bearing on that. So you, you, your point is quite right. It could have a, you know, we, you know, only time will tell. But of course, it could prove to be a financially negative decision, 
not knowing what the longer term impacts of those are. So yeah, and and those things those things are weighed up and considered with every decision that's made because that's that's part of the strategy. It has to be. But yes, yeah, a very fair argument. You know, time will prove. Time will prove. Now let's turn to your departure from the Conservative group. At what point did you first learn about the specific issues that Councillor Farouk was having within the group? Oh, okay. So, I, I mean, you can go back, you can actually go back a couple of years on this. So when um, Councillor John Holditch stood down, obviously the Conservative group had a, had, a, had a right to vote for a new leader. Um, now, at that time, because Councillor Holditch was standing down, it was never going to be a leadership challenge to, to his leadership. It was a fresh chance, fresh opportunity. So, obviously, Councillor Fitzgerald, rightly deputy at the time, decided to, to stand. Um, and so did Councillor Farouk, in fairness to him. Um, and I think, I think it, caused, it, it did cause a deterioration in their relationship, which is kind of sad, really, because in the end... You know, the vote was the vote, you know, and Councillor Fitzgerald was, was elected the leader. I think from Farouk's perspective, that was probably the end of the story, you know, and it was really about going back to carrying on with the administration. But, you know, the public will see, you know, there was cabinet members in, there was cabinet members out at that time. Uh, was it for the right or wrong reasons? Uh, again, Tom would tell perhaps, but... You know, I think that was the. I think it's very important to note that that was the start of the deterioration of the relationship. Because I think a lot of people in the public will will look at what's happened the last few months and think, "Well, how on earth has it come to this?" And I think the story does start two years ago because I think from that point on, they've never been the best of friends, shall we say? You know, and that's, you know, that's that's between them. But you know, the relationship deteriorated from that point on. Um, I became aware as soon as um, I heard, well, we all heard, I say we, the Conservative group on the WhatsApp group had a message on the group um, to say Councillor Fruk had been suspended. And for me, that was the start of a real deterioration in, in my feelings for the group, because I thought the WhatsApp message we received not only, um, of course, named Councillor Fruk because he was being suspended, but it also detailed why he was being suspended and I thought I thought that was really out of hand because I I felt we'd already lost four councillors you know and and I do not understand how a leader can choose to go through this process and think any good can come of this because you know with a group that's already on the ropes having lost four councillors whatever did he think this this would do to Councillor Farouk, and whatever did he think would be the other repercussions of it? Did he think all the Hampton councillors, there, there was five Conservative councillors, if you look at Hampton Vale and Hampton Argate and Hempstead, did he not consider at one point, what if all those people were so affected by this that they go as well? And the Farouk was vindicated. You know, there was no evidence against him for, for the allegation, which was he was encouraging the opposition to challenge the leadership as such. But... I think, um, yeah, it's really, it's really hard to quantify the decision-making process because if, let's just say, that Councillor Fitzgerald was right, let's just imagine for one second that, you know, there was some truth in it. Well, even then, as leader of the council, with a group that's already reduced to 26, would you take that information and would you humiliate that person on, on the WhatsApp group in front of all their colleagues, which is what happened... <laughs> 
Or would you actually think, well, hold on a minute, there's only 26 of us. I can play this smart. If I know he is capable of this, I can keep a watch. I, I've got colleagues around me who can keep an eye, and I can play this smart. You know, there's only 26. Let's be smart. Let's be methodical. But no, <laughs> that wasn't the way it went. And so, you know, it makes no sense to me why we went through this awful process. Fruit was suspended for two to three weeks. And and at that point, I, I was I was beginning to have doubts. Not because of the suspension, because, you know, end of the day, if there is enough evidence, I suppose any of us could have been suspended. So I, I, I don't, you know, I don't argue that point. What I argue is that the conduct on the WhatsApp group to even say what was happening, which kind of really made someone guilty before even going through a process. It was, the whole thing was completely unprofessional and was completely targeted to to humiliate Farouk. Did you witness any behaviour that, or before that, that looking back you would classify as bullying within the group? It's really, yeah, so it's interesting because I know there's been there's been talk of a toxic culture in the Conservative group. And, and do you know what I can say? I can say I don't, I wouldn't go as far as toxic culture. I think there are toxic people in the group. You know, I look at that group, and I won't name names, but there is still some really good people in that group who probably, like me, had a bit of a moral dilemma at the time this was all going on, and we're probably still wrestling with it now. But there is, the toxicity is in is in people. And and there is a certain group of people who, who are creating this environment and contributing to it. Um, did I ever see it firsthand? No. Because I think, because it was so um, personal, if that's the right way, and, and not between groups, or, or the group, it was between groups of people within that. So I think because of that, it was always very one-to-one in how it was done. But I have seen, I mean, it hasn't been made public and, and hopefully it never will because I, I just don't think it's it's right to drag it on. But Councillor Fruit got a horrendous message directly from the leader after this suspension started. And to me, you know, that in itself is is bullying is toxic and is completely unacceptable in any environment. You know, crikey, you wouldn't have your your boss at work message you what Farouk was messaged. Why should it be right in this environment? It's not. Was it at that point that resignation came across your mind? Yes, yes it was. Yeah, so I think it had started to rankle with me. Um, we had the sort of the hearing, if that's the right way of putting it, um, and and at that point, I mean, luckily for Farouk, he'd managed to obtain um, the transcripts that were being effectively used against him. And what they showed was that there was no case to answer. But what you did see was you saw the behaviour of a whip who was determined to try and find something to answer. And what I'd say is, is that the whip's fault? I will never know for sure. But he was probably led down a certain route to to drive a certain outcome I would say so you know that's on him to answer really um but yeah from from that point on yeah that that evening was was dreadful because it it got to the end of the meeting where Farouk was exonerated and I said to the rest of the group and and to be honest it had been it'd been a very emotional few weeks very very hard to um to take really because Farouk is uh, um, a councillor colleague, a ward colleague, but he's become a friend as well. 
So, you know, in any walk of life, you would find that really tough. And, I, and it was a really tough few weeks. Um, but that night, I challenged the leader and the whip and said, look, you've suspended someone on, on um, this evidence, which has been submitted anonymously. You know, so, so how could any of us be protected? You know, because effectively, all 26 people could have been suspended on hearsay, effectively. So I said, well, where is our protection? Then rather than anyone standing up and saying, well, yeah, John, that's right. Like, how have we got to this point? How can we make this better? There was a few members who decided to sort of challenge me. And it was at that point when I left the room, I thought, that's probably the last time I will be in a room with this group of people. Uh, still sort of freshened it out in my mind. But I saw Farouk's um, video interview, and that's, to be honest, I, I've only watched it once. I, I, I cannot watch it. It's just so... It's just one of the saddest things I've ever watched, to, to be honest. And as soon as I saw that video, I, that was my mind made up. I, I knew what I had to do then because, you know, I, you know, it sacrificed a lot because obviously I've done a lot for the group. Um, you know, the cabinet role as well, and not just and not just the, the the cabinet, but letting down the officers that I worked so closely with. To be honest, that that to me um, was harder a decision to make than than leaving behind political colleagues, you know. But I, I knew at that point that was the only thing I could do because it was just unacceptable the way he'd been treated and the conduct of the group. And, and despite, you know, cabinet, anything, I, th I just, you know, principles come first, you know, and it's just, and the behaviour's unacceptable. I, I had to call it out. Would you say that those that have remained within the Conservative group are complicit with that culture, having decided not to take the same action that you did? I think, going back to what I said, I think there's, you know, I would still say there was good people and bad people in that group. And I think the good people, I can only assume are still in that group because they think they can change it from inside. My thinking was, if it was one person with this bad behaviour, if you like, then maybe that would be true. Maybe you could change, make that change. But my argument is, you're sitting around waiting for nothing because you could change the person at the top. But there is a whole group of these people who are, who are dragging this party down. Or the party, I should probably say. Um, you know, so I don't believe, you know, there might be good people there for good intentions thinking we can make the difference. But I can't see how they can without some really serious wholesale changes. Because you're not just talking of changing one person. There is a whole set of people. And, you know, that is probably a challenge too far. Um, so, you know... <sighs> Yeah, they they will have to be accountable for their own decisions, I think. Now, I should say that Councillor Andy Coles, who will be on the podcast next month, uh, released a statement on behalf of the Conservatives uh, saying that they, quote, strenuously deny that there's a toxic culture and refute any allegations of bullying towards Councillor Farouk from any member. What was your first thought when you heard that statement? Well... I was absolutely shocked. I mean, part of that statement was offering for me to come back. And being, and being quite honest, you know, I, I, I did have a couple of conversations, which was more out of an affinity of the few years I'd had with them. But as I made clear in the, in the conversations I had, how on earth can you put out a statement like that? And that was the end of the conversations, because I thought, you cannot put out a statement like that and, and yet at the same time say things are changing. You know, Councillor Coles wasn't at that meeting. Um, he was on holiday. So how he can talk about that meeting, I do not know, because he, he wasn't there. 
You know, and that's that's my first annoyance. <laughs> How can you possibly make a case for something where you wasn't even even there to see what happened? But it, he's right and wrong because is there a is there a toxic culture? Full stop. Every single person in that group, I, I would still say there there isn't. I would say, but there is toxic people, and for that, I think Andy himself, you know, in his position in the cabinet, he should be looking at. Because it's you know it's an issue for him as much as it is anyone else who's left in that group. So this head in the sand effect, it just it just won't cut it. The biggest thing I'm surprised with with that press statement was they they promised Farouk an apology, which he never got. <laughs> but how strange that a, an organisation couldn't at least have the decency to say we are sorry for how Farouk feels. Now in saying that, you're not even admitting defeat. You're not even admitting that you're wrong. But what you are doing is giving a bit of humility to say, you know, if that's how Farouk feels, we are sorry he feels that way. That didn't even come into it. You know, without even admitting anything, they could have said that, which would have been, you know, from a pub, I think the public would have looked at that and thought, well, well, that is something. But to come out and just completely obliterate it and not even acknowledge the treatment, yeah, just I'm, I'm beyond words. I'm, I, I still can't quite believe what's happened. I must say. Can you ever see a time where you might return to the Conservative group at some point? No, no, no. I think I, I think um, publicly, I think that is a a question that's asked a lot. Um, it's probably asked by a lot of uh, members in the chamber as well. Uh, no, the, the simple answer is no. I think the public will decide. The public will decide. You know, when I come to next election, I will stand as as Peterborough first. Now, if they like me in the ward and want me to stay in the ward, they will have to vote for me as Peterborough first. If they want a Conservative, they will have to vote for someone else and vote that person in instead of me. And if that's the decision that's made in the ward, I will accept it, to be honest. But no, I think, uh, going back to your question, because it's not just one person, it's not just you know, there's not a small change needed here. There is a really serious big change needed amongst a, a, a significant group of people. And I don't think it will happen in my lifetime, in fairness. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> Did you consider your position when councillors Rush, Bisbee, Ellsby and uh, Hiller left? Yeah, it did. I mean, that was the start of, 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 of my feelings. Um, and again, I mean, like we've been saying, that, you know, those, I, I mean, to be honest... You you probably have to talk to those councillors to get their their stories because of it. But what I will say is, their decisions were based again on on the leadership decisions, if you like, and the leadership sway, and that needs answering because what happened, you know, a, a lot of it comes down to the, this contentious planning application. Now, what I would say is that you know whether you're a friend of the political administration or an enemy of the political administration you still have a right to put a plan and application through and it has to go through a legal process and do you know what whether you love the administration or hate the administration if you have a legally compliant application and it makes sense for the city and the officers like it then then fair enough that's you know anyone can do that um you know and and ultimately what happened here was it was a friend of the administration who put it through which again is fine, friends, enemies, it, does, it shouldn't matter. It makes no difference. It all has to go through the same process. But that's where, it, that's where it came apart for them. 
Um, and it wasn't just what happened with the process, it was the behaviour in group meetings. Because, again, the public probably look at those decisions and those resignations and think, well, what's happened? There's been no meetings. But there were still group meetings going on. So, you know, that they left because of what was being said in, in those group meetings that aren't, you know, minuted. But, yeah, and, and again, and, and that is because of how decisions were made, but also how they're staged and communicated. Um, that whole situation could have been handled so differently and perhaps they would have had a, a different story than what they've got now. At the time of your resignation, you said that you've always put the people of the city before politics in your approach. Do you feel that's the same for everyone else on the council? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, because if not, I question what, what these people do. But yeah, definitely, I think, you know, when I, locally... Um, locally, me and Farouk have, have never been, um, what's the way I put it, we are not political councillors, if you like. So when we come to the town hall, and this is, it's true of every councillor, when you come to the town hall, every councillor wears their badge and, and votes however their, perhaps however their party orientates them or, or whips them to do. But when you're out in your own wards, really it should be, you know, it's local first. It's never about party. Um, yeah, and that, that's true for me and Fruit. We've always conducted ourselves, you know, locally, whether you vote for us or not, you know, and, and some people aren't afraid to tell us, <laughs> you know, we will still help them regardless, even if they turn to us and say, look, we hate your politics, we'll never vote for you in a million years. Well, fine, if you need help, you still need help, because I'm not elected to serve the people who voted for me. I'm elected to serve everyone in the ward, you know. So, so I've worked with people who, and helped people who I know full well would never vote for me. But that doesn't stop me trying for them, because that's what it's all about. So I think, locally, I hope a lot of people voted for us, perhaps despite the fact that we were Conservatives, rather than because we were Conservatives, if that makes sense. And I think that's something the leader needs to bear in mind. I think, he, you know... He, he talks about how people have voted in and you know and how that could change but if you've got good local councillors doing a local job they will probably be supported regardless of a political affiliation because when you vote a local councillor you're not voting for an mp who's voted in 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 the house of commons you're voting for a local person doing local things for you and when you approach that person with a problem you're confident that they will sort it out and that is what it's all about Obviously, alongside yourself and Councillor Farouk, the other councillor of the ward is Councillor Moyo. Um, she has remained with the Conservative group. Have you managed to continue a working relationship with her since your departure? Yeah, we do. We do still talk. We do still talk. Very difficult. Um, you know, Councillor Moyo is probably at a different point in her life, political life, to me and Farouk. I would imagine the administration have said to her, you know, she's a very young woman. You know, really exciting to have someone like that in local politics. You know, it's brilliant. But she is someone who's probably been told, oh, stick with us, you know, sky's the limit. You could become an MP, you could become a police and crime commissioner, you could be the combined authority, you know. And to have that conversation when you're in your 20s probably feels quite empowering and exciting. You know, for, for perhaps myself and Farouk, you know, we're not thinking of those things, frankly. <laughs> You know, so so we're at different times in our life. Am I, am I sad that she hasn't come with us? Of course I am. You know, and I think the public understand that. I think Nicole understands that as well. Um, of course I'm sad that she hasn't come with us. But at the same time, I do understand why. You know, everyone has their own reasons and you have to respect that. So so we, we hold 
we're holding a cord, but it is very difficult for us to work closely because the public will look at Nicole if she was pictured with us and say, why? Why is she, you know, why is she not left? Why is she not left? And equally, if we're pictured with her, it would be, well, why are you working with someone where you've just come from this, you know, this treatment that Farouk's had and now you're saying it's okay? So we, have, we sort of have to me measure it delicately. But, yeah, it, yeah, it's not, you know, for Nicole, it's not an ideal situation. For us, it's not an ideal situation either. Now, I don't know if you live within the ward that you represent, but would you vote for her next year? Uh, well, thankfully, I don't. <laughs> so, so I don't. So I probably don't have to answer that because that, that wouldn't be fair, I suppose. I, um, I live literally in Hamza Vale, right on the edge of my ward. So I look out at my ward <laughs> from my window. So have I escaped that question? Well, I think I have. <laughs> Will you be voting for the Conservative candidate within your ward next year? Oh, there's a good question. Well, it depends who's it depends who's on Joe. It depends who's on the the card next year. I think is it someone who's going to do good things locally? Is it someone who's going to work with me and Farouk? I'll be looking at that as well. So yeah, it, yeah, it will be an interesting year. We will see. <laughs> Can you understand why some people are frustrated that you and two of your colleagues departed just over a month after being re-elected for a four-year term on a Conservative ticket? haven't called by-elections to give voters a say yeah I can understand that I can understand that I think what what's very strange for me is that I've had not a single comment to say we are aggrieved because we voted for you as a conservative I, and I can honestly say that not a single person has emailed phoned facebooked I've not had a single negative comment and for that, I think it says a lot about what we do locally. And it says, going back to what I said perhaps a few minutes ago, that perhaps people haven't voted for me because of a badge. I did stand on a badge, and I accept that. But, you know, ultimately, they voted for me because of what I do locally. What I would say is to, to people, because I think the, the leader himself will challenge me on this as well. So what I will say is I haven't left because of policy. I haven't left because of party. I've left because of the treatment of a colleague, which is very different. So I haven't resigned because I've politically fell out of bed. I haven't resigned because, you know, I want to join a new political party. I've resigned because of the treatment of Farouk, which is an entirely different yardstick to what perhaps is being argued. So I think what's fair to say is I only resigned because of certain people's behaviour. If that behaviour hadn't happened, it wouldn't be an issue. <laughs> Do you wish you'd left the group sooner? Oh, that is a good question. I think, um, I, impossible to answer really. I think when I look at the last council meeting, I think there was an enjoy, I, I probably enjoyed that council meeting more than any other probably over the last years because it does give a certain freedom. You know, I think it's the first time I've been able to talk freely and openly without having to represent a party you know which as I say when you go into town hall you do have to wear the badge and it's the first time I've been in there and not wore a badge so I have enjoyed it should I have done it sooner I suppose everything in hindsight isn't it um but yeah I've, I think yeah I'm enjoying I'm enjoying this new world in Peterborough first I must say do you think Councillor Fitzgerald will still be leading the council going into the next election oh. <laughs> what can we say to that um I think that a lot of that is of his making. A lot of that will be of his making. It'll be of his behaviour. It'll be of his conduct. 
And it's, it's his to lose, in all honesty, I would say. And my advice to him, if I could give him any advice, is, you know, conduct yourself in a proper way because it's your job to lose. It's not anyone else's to take. If I look at what happened in the last meeting with the... And I'm sorry, I will probably get onto this, I'm sure. But if I look at the motions and the debate and the subsequent press releases that have come out afterwards, I don't think it helps, in all honesty. So I think everyone needs to think carefully about how they're behaving. Would you say to your former colleagues within the group that you think they would stand a better chance at the next election with a different leader? They would, but it's not just about that. It's not just about that, because you could have a different, you know, that group could have a different leader tomorrow, maybe. It's not in my hands, but they could, couldn't they? Um, But the people who are still orchestrating, the, the cogs in that party and that group will still be there. So... I, I don't think it's as simple as saying a different leader would give them a better chance. It, it might slightly, but I think actually there is a bit of a major internal shuffle on who's influencing those key people that needs to change. And that won't be changed with just with one person. So for that reason, I'd say it's probably not as simple as them just changing their leader. It needs something much bigger than that. After a short period as an independent, you've now joined the Peterborough First Group. Can you tell us a bit about how the group works? Because it's not a traditional political party, is it? No, no, it's not. No, it's very unusual because there's no whip, which is which is odd for me because um, I come from a, a, you know, a very political environment. That's all I've ever known, really. So it is a very strange environment. I think the public perception of it is, is I mean, I, I do see comments where they say, well, you know, it's like an ex-Tory working men's club, you know, and I... I kind of smile because I don't disagree with the sentiment. Like, it does look that way, doesn't it? <laughs> but, but that's not strictly true. What you, I mean, what you've got, you've got a group of people who, you know, ultimately, are they Conservative? Are they Labour? Are they Lib Dem? Are they Green? What are they? What they are really, all of, all of us, I say us, it's all of us. We are all middle ground politicians. You know, we're not far left. We're not far right. We're just in the middle sort of common sense kind of what's best for the people on the street you know we we all work to that that ethos so it's yeah it's it's a strange group in that it probably never expected to be this size at this point you know if you look back to a year ago it's a it's a incredible transformation um so it it will take it will take time i think to become you know it's a bit of a sleeping giant at the moment um, I was really pleased to see Chris's first article in the Telegraph because I think for the public that starts to give a bit of a drive of what we're about um, because the fact is when it was four members it probably didn't need to be really about anything other than those individual members and how they feel but it feels like now Peaceborough First needs to have a meaning it needs to have sort of you know some sort of some some values if you like some common values that people can look at and go yes that makes sense to me that's what they are so it's not an ex-party working club <laughs> I must admit, I'll, I'll, I'll fight that one down but it is yeah it is a group that's evolving very quickly and what it does have now is it has I mean especially I mean blimey it had it already with people like John and Judy Fox but what it has now is it has an awful lot of years experience between it it has cabinet experience it has chair experience you know it has long-term ward council experience it's a very 
it's a very interesting mix of people i have to say i'm really excited to be part of it but i think what you'll see over the next few months hopefully with chris's regular column you'll start to see what we're all about as well you know and what we are about really is is peter when it says peterborough first people probably think well that maybe that sounds empty on its own but to define it more we will decide on something that's best for the city and not best for ourselves and it's not a criticism of every political party because they don't all work like this but ultimately if you've got people influencing your local political party it does predetermine some outcomes and some decisions and there is vested interest whereas for us there is no vested interest at all it is just purely the people of the city before any other you know there is no ulterior motive at all and i think for for the public i think maybe that's the sort of politics they want to see do you think that going forward we'll see new peterborough first candidates being offered up at the the next election or is it just a group for disgruntled councillors from other groups (laughs) brilliant (laughs) no i hope we do i hope we do i think um you know what we don't know at the moment is we don't know how many amazing people there are out there who who want to stand but don't want to stand for a party maybe for many different reasons so you know how many of those people are out there and and we don't know the answer to that in fairness but you know it is quite exciting because if someone out there cares enough about their community and is really impassioned to make a difference but doesn't feel like going on a political ticket well now they have another choice you know so again time will tell but I think it yeah it could be a really exciting time I think so you would encourage anyone who would like to stand as a councillor to get in touch yeah absolutely yeah and to be honest I would encourage them to 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 approach whatever their political (laughs) motive may be you know if you want to stand as a councillor for any political group you should approach you know because you know there there are opportunities but yet selfishly for us even more so yeah absolutely yeah if you're listening to this and think well i you know i want to find out more please do approach us you know because you know the city needs good passionate people who just care about the city and the communities they're in and really that's what you want out of out of your councillor if those people are sitting out there on the fence thinking i don't know what to do next they need to reach out with no manifesto and a collection of essentially independent councillors, is it possible that the group could take part in helping to run the council in the future? I don't think it's impossible. Yeah, I don't think it's impossible because I think what we have to look at is we have to look at our values. And as you say, there isn't a clear manifesto at the moment, but I think I think you'll find it shaping into one. I think there will be. I think you know. I think our core values are to have a compassionate council. You know, to have a transparent council, you know, to have a council that puts people before politics. You know, those are values that I think could be shared cross-politically. And I think, you know, when you look at politics and, you know, there's a lot of things that people disagree on. But fundamentally, I think most people are generally in the midfield when it comes to general politics. Um, and you can see that in the success of some prime ministers and local elections we've had too. You know, people... You know, most people don't have an extreme right-wing view or, or, or far-left view or whatever you might call it. They generally just want things to work well, you know. And, you know, I've got some money in my pocket, I'm safe, I'm being well looked after, and I'm in a place that is exciting to me. It's got opportunity, and that's what it's all about. And that doesn't have to be a far-left or far-right 
that's just middle level. <laughs> so would we ever be part of, of something in the future? I think we have a, something to contribute with the experience we've got. And I think if you look at most political groups, yes, there might be differences and gaps between what everyone views, but are most people mid-level on most days of the week when it comes to it on, on what this city needs? I think they are. So yes, there's every chance. Would a decision like that require the consent of all the members of the group or would it just be down to each individual as to whether they would want to take part? Yeah, well, there, there's a very good question without a whip because I think at the moment it would be down to every each individual member. Now, you know, so, and for some members, maybe it, you know, maybe it would be uncomfortable, maybe. Um, I think it's something that would have to be asked at the time. But yes, it would be down to each one to, to agree or not if that was ever to be the case so it is quite it's quite an unusual group at the moment but i think it is shaping it is shaping now now you're a keen runner having once completed four marathons in four days for charity you're also a big proponent of the great eastern run which takes place in the city each year how big could that event become and what benefits does it bring to the city Oh, great question. Yeah, so I, I helped bring it back whilst I was um, cabinet advisor for Steve, and, and credit to Steve and Wayne actually, because they were they were very pro bringing the event back on. So I'll give credit where it's due, and they also gave me enough rope to try and m- help make it happen. Um, so we got a really good partner with um, Good Running Events to to bring the event back. Yeah, I'm 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 really passionate and and emotive about the Great Eastern Run because it's. It's just incredible. I mean, at the moment, yeah, what potential has it got? I think, I mean, you know, we've had days where it's had four or 5,000 runners. I'd love to see that back again. You know, that, that's what it's all about. And what benefits does it bring to the city? Well, what it does is it brings, well, for the biggest thing in my mind is the community engagement of it. You know, I mean, I, every time I run it, I, can, I mean, out of all the races I've done, it has one of the best at race atmospheres of any race in the UK, honestly. Like, it really does. It's, I mean, if anyone who hasn't experienced it, please go and experience it, because you will see the city comes alive, you know, and you, and you see that people, you know, people have good intentions for the city, you know. Everyone comes out and cheers everyone on. It's incredible. So I think that's the first thing, it, what it does for the, how the city feels about itself you know and that's really important i think um helps local businesses as well um and helps local hotels i mean you know the hilton if we ever see the hilton we'll never know <laughs> but if we do how fantastic to have that right there the, the start of the race you know in my mind those guys need to help support the great eastern more because that's their future you know we the city needs landmark events like this to help local hotels and more so local businesses you know what you want is you want someone to come to peterborough from out out the city run the great eastern and go blimey this place looks fantastic i'm going to come back and visit again you know because that's what you need to happen but for that to happen there's other parts that we probably need to get right as well but isn't wouldn't that be a brilliant goal hampton is a an area of the city where turnout is particularly poor Uh, Since your ward was created by the boundary changes in 2016, it's never reached 28%. And when you were re-elected this year, it was just over 21%. Why do so few people bother to get out and vote? And what could could the council do to encourage more to do so? Do you know, it is the saddest thing. And and when we go canvassing, we, we sort of think, you know, it's scary to think that only one in five doors that we knock at could even be motivated enough, in fact, it's not even one in five doors, is it, but couldn't even be motivated enough to come out and vote is is really, really sad, I have to say, because, you know, the work we do locally, 
the interaction we have locally, you know, maybe with people who've never voted, uh, never mind voted for us, never voted full stop. How do we change that? How do we change that? Uh, with Hampton is particularly strange because it's always, you know, it's always had a very low figure. And, and what is going on with that? I mean, when Hampton was first designed, it was probably designed as a, you know, people come live in Hampton and commute to London for work, you know. And I think it probably encouraged what, what probably from the outside looked like a, a fairly disengaged population perhaps at first. But I, but I don't think that's true anymore. It, you know, it's defied that model because that's not true that everyone gets on their bike and bikes to the railway station and goes to London for their job. So, so there is something more to it than that. And there is an apathy. I, I kind of thought postal vote would help because I think the fact that you can get a ballot card through your door, and especially now with voter ID as well, you know, it's it's so much easier. So get it through your door. There's loads of post boxes in Hampton. In fact, I've <laughs> probably helped to get most of them in place. You know, it's so easy to do. So, so there is no an- easy answer to this. Clearly, there is an issue with engagement. There is an issue with engagement, and it's. It needs fixing. I think I think younger people, we're losing younger people because younger people aren't voting at all. That's a big problem because in Hampton, you know, there is quite a young population in Hampton as well. But, you know, we're also losing everyone else and we really need to do some work on it. We really need to do some work on it because all areas of Peterborough seem to be impacted by this to a certain level. And is it, I mean, is it something more than we can fix? Is it a feeling of apathy? Is it a feeling of oh, whoever I vote for? Nothing's going to change. Well, if if people think that, well, crikey, you know, please come out and vote because you can't ever say something isn't, well, you can, but arguably, how could you say, I'm not happy with this decision, I don't want that to happen, if you haven't been part of the journey and supported whoever you think is best for that journey? Um, so how do we get it right? I think the council need to do more comms. I think we need to look at how we communicate with people as well. Um, so for, for, for me, it's mostly Facebook, it's newsletters, but, you know, but social media is changing so quickly, you know, I I should probably be TikToking, but the thought of me dancing on a TikTok video is not something, you know, (laughs) I'd probably be unelected on that basis, but but clearly, I think councillors need to look at how they engage with their, their communities as well, because I think there is something there, I think the social media platforms are changing so quick, are we ever fully up to speed with that Arguably, probably not. And I think that probably needs improving as well. Labour Group leader, Councillor Dennis Jones, has gone on record calling Peterborough MP Paul Bristow a liar over his claims of a secret plan for a low emission zone within the city. Would you agree with that language? Yes. <laughs> yeah, this is something, I mean, you probably saw in the council debate. I, and, and subsequently, you know, I've gone, I've been very public in our cross arm with this. Um, so... So to define this fully, and, and the public need to understand this, with, with the motions that came through at the July full council, um, the administration generally don't put through policy motions because they are the administration. It's, it's a leader and cabinet model. Um, so, you know, we had some motions that were policy put to the full council, which the full council mostly decided to not support not because of the content of the motion, but because of the absurdity of it, because it was it, it, it was seen as, a, and this is how I saw it as well, I saw it as a political stunt. So the motion for the ULES, the congestion charge, so on, had no need to come to council, because at the end of the day, we have a leader, we have a cabinet model, 
the leader and cabinet model can make those decisions in minutes. It doesn't even need to, to come to council in this debate. The only reason it should come to council is if the opposition actually turn around and say, I want congestion charging, so therefore I'm going to put a motion in to force the administration to have a congestion charge. Well, no one in the opposition has done that. So the whole thing is, is, is a stunt. I knew as soon as I saw the motion what it was trying to do, and it was trying to give um, uh, Peterborough MP Paul Bristow a, a bit of a leg up in a, in a campaign and to start mobilisation. Because I think in politics there is this belief that if you say something often enough, people will believe it. And I think anyone looking at it, even, even the last couple of days, Social media posts, you less is coming, you know, it's going to cost everyone twelve fifty. I, I do not buy it. I do not buy it. If you look locally, the um, Sir Chris Harper, uh, Peaceful First Leader, has come out and said, not under his watch. And if anyone in the public listens to the debate, no one in the debate said, I want it. You've noticed, and if anyone hasn't seen it, please watch it back, because it's really important stuff going on here. Lib Dem leader, Councillor Hogg, Councillor Jones, Labour leader, have all come out publicly and said, it's not happening. We don't want it. We don't support it. There is now a strategy to show the combined authority um, sort of transport plan, the, the working agreement that they've got going. And they're copying and pasting the wording of that saying, look, it's coming. Doomsday is here. But even if you look at the language in that document, it's, it's saying we'd consult. We might. We will look into you know, it's really difficult because the public get one side of the story. But, you know, even in this combined authority document, which is which they're saying now is the proof it's going to happen, is, you know, the, the read the language in that and tell me where it says it's coming. Because it, it, it's not. It's not. And all the political, the opposition political groups, strangely, for once, agree with the serving political group. But if you look at Paul Bristow's media comms, you wouldn't believe that for a minute. We all agree. No one wants it. You know, and, this, and the combined authority in their, in their transport document, well, yes, it suggests it, but it's very much a consultation. We might. We're applicable. Well, in Peaceborough, it's not applicable, so therefore it's, a, it's an irrelevant document for us. But I, it did annoy me very much, all the motions that come through, because... They were using council officer time, which is really precious time. You know, the council officers have to approve these motions when they come in. They have to read through them, sometimes suggest tweaks to them. Why should a council officer be doing that to prop up an MP's campaign? It's completely improper. And the administration should know better. That's what I would say. Don't bring motions to council to prop up an MP's campaign. It's, it's improper. It's improper use of the council meeting time because we sit in the chamber to, to make decisions for the public you know that's what we're there to do we're there to serve the public we are not there to play an mp's party trick to to engineer his next campaign it's completely improper use of it's improper use of time in the chamber and it's completely improper use of council officer time and uh, it's something i'm really cross about because i just think it's it's not good behavior at all my last guest on the podcast was youth MP for Peterborough, Eva Woods, who responded negatively when I asked her if she felt safe when out and about in the city. What needs to be done immediately to improve that situation? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is such a big topic, such a big topic, because I, I, I do agree with her. Like, like myself and my wife only came out on a Saturday night and, and very much felt the same, you know, so... 
I, I do understand what she's saying, and she is right. She is right. Um, what do we need to do? It kind of feels to me like it needs a bit of everyone working together. You've got Queensgate, which is effectively a private enterprise. You know, the council work with Queensgate, support Queensgate, but aren't Queensgate, if that makes sense. And I think sometimes the public look at that and think, you know, and then there's the Bridge Street, you know, the city centre, you know, so we need all those people to come together um, and we need more people coming to the city in the first place. The city needs to be more open. You know, we came on a Saturday night and you've, you, you know, if you look, you've got cafes scattered, restaurants scattered, you know, that's one of the reasons it doesn't feel safe is because the things that are open are so distanced, if that makes sense. So when you're walking down the road, you know, you maybe six, seven shops are shut. So that's the first issue. You need to get the, the, the stuff that's so somehow, and I know this is perfect world stuff, but the stuff that's open should be in its own hub. That's the first thing. So people are only going to one area. The second thing that needs to happen is, you know, there's always talk about more police in the city centre. More, It's all well and good saying that, but the police will always go to where the biggest emergency is. And where the biggest emergency isn't sometimes is patrolling the city said, frankly. You know, if there's life, if life is on the line, they will always leave for that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so what we need, then need is, well, why don't we have just some paid local security walking about? But that's down to the shops, Queensgate, the City Council, Opportunity Peterborough. All these people need to come together and help fund something like this um there is an issue obviously with with homelessness as well which um to be honest there is so much going on to support to support homelessness you know we've got the light project we've got council officers out every night you know checking on these people how can we help them what can we do you know so it feels like we're doing as much as we can there but again that that does create a, a certain feeling at certain times in the city center I, I do understand but i think the biggest thing that needs to happen is we from a from a planning side or from an ambition side all these places that are and there's some incredible places like if you walk a bridge street we've got some brilliant venues but we somehow need to get them together so that when people come it's safe because everyone is around at the same time you're not walking down a side street to get somewhere to go to you know your next drink or your next meal and i think we we just need between us to to fund some wardens why not ask for volunteers even you know what would be wrong with that you know, is there people who, who would be willing to do that for a few hours a month, you know, once a month? Why not? Why aren't we having these conversations, you know? And, and to, to my mind, Opportunity Peaceborough really need to do more on this because they're now brought into the city council. Why can't we see a few more things like this? You know, let's just change the thinking. You know, what can we do? Even volunteers wouldn't cost anything. You know, let's just let's just get some people on the street to support the city centre, to make it a bit more safe. And when it comes to future ambitions of where things go, planning-wise or application-wise, why can't everyone just work together and bring these places into a more unified... You know, I mean, crikey, I haven't been clubbing for what feels like 100 years. But, you know, what? I can remember just about going to clubs in Peterborough at a time when, when you think about it, everything was together. You know, if you come out one one door, you straight into the next one. Well, we've lost that. You know, we've lost that. And, and you know, it's not 
Is it because of any reason in particular? Probably not. It's just, you know, some businesses have survived, some haven't. Fair enough. But I think now we've got to get those together. We've got to get just wardens on the street to make people feel safe. It's not always a police. You know, we can do other things as well. The police are brilliant and the police can help. But, you know, the answer is in our hands as well sometimes. And, and we need to push that more. How do you feel when you see the constant suggestions on social media that there's a steady stream of brown envelopes passing under the tables around decisions made by the council? The problem with that is that that is a perception. And to be honest, whether it's true or not, the issue for me is the fact that people feel that is bad enough in the first place. You know, and you know, going back to the reason why the, the four people stood down originally, you know, we can never say whether there was or wasn't, and it's not, and, and you know, be out of order for me to say something that I don't know for, for myself. We will never know. But what we do know is if people feel that, then even the fact that it's a perception is very, very wrong. And it needs to be looked at. And it goes back to what I was saying about the fact that decisions may or may not be, be made any differently, but the way they're orientated and the conduct that happens around those decisions needs to change so that people can look at it in a different way. And, and what you've said there is, is exactly why things need to be done differently. Because whether it's, whether it's true or not, and, and I would say the leader would say implicitly that it's not true at all, okay, acknowledge that then, but also acknowledge why are people thinking that. That's the bit you are in control of. That's the bit you should be able to change. You know, and the public, yeah, I, you know, for, for me... It's a great worry that the public feel like that. And I think as part of our group, I think thinking of a transparent council, we would desperately punch away from that because that the, the fact that people are thinking it, whether it's true or not, is not a very good sign of the council. As always on the podcast, we like to finish with some quickfire questions. First of all, is Peterborough a city in decline or a city on the rise? I think the jury is out. It could yet go either way. Of course, we we want it to be on the rise. There is no doubt about it. But, you know, there is a tough few years ahead. And I think the council needs to be dynamic, needs to be engaged. You know, things like the, the cinema complex, which at the moment is, is, you know, not looking very, very good. But all those things need a push, need support to make it happen. So... I'm an optimist and I would say it needs to be on the rise. And, and as local politicians, we have to help push that. So I would prefer a rise and that's what I would be working for. <laughs> Has Brexit been a positive or a negative for the city? Um, well, I was a Remainer and I still am a Remainer. It hasn't changed my mind. I, w- I, would, say it's been, I would say it's been negative for the city. If you had control of the council tomorrow, what are the first three changes that you'd make? The first thing I'd change is the level of transparency and how things are communicated. I think that is the the biggest thing that needs to change. Um, The second thing I would change is the conduct of the council um, because the conduct at the moment is not very good. And and you've already said about the public perception of some of the things that go on is not very good. So there is a major conduct issue. And I'm not accusing the council and officers of that. That's a a political um, councillor issue that that desperately needs sorting out. The third thing I would do, if I'm allowed two things in one go, I'm not sure, is start to look at the the plan for the future. We've got the, 
you know, we've got the city plan, we've also got the master plan, we've also got the embankment plan. Both those things are really on fire and really need some eyes on them that are not politically biased or biased to certain groups or whatever it might be. Mm. It needs a real open discussion and it needs a real exciting solution because both those things are going to be the story of the next 10, 20 years. Embankment could be a lifetime story if you get it right. They really need to happen. So maybe I should have put that first. I'll put it first because I feel the transparency and the conduct are so important to get right first. But yeah, they are the big tickets and they need to be done right. What's been your biggest success as a councillor to date? Well, that's a good question. I think I think bringing back the Great Eastern will, well, I say bring, it's not, I can't say bring back, help bring back the Great Eastern, I should say, to be correct. That that to me is, is yeah, it's definitely the, the achievement I'm most proud of. And, and I just hope that is an achievement that lasts. You know, people need to support that race because if you don't run it, marshal it or sponsor it, you know, it's not a guaranteed commodity for our lifetimes. You know, everyone in the city needs to get behind it in some way. But yeah, for me, that's, that's the thing I'm most proud of because to see that start line go off and be part of it, yeah, I can't even describe how good that is. Brilliant. Tell us something that people might not know about you. Oh, well, uh, yeah, so I suppose, well, I suppose most people would know me for running, I suppose. Um, so what else can I tell you? I could, I could tell you I'm very bad at karaoke, but thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, I haven't done it for so long that at the time I did it, there was no video phones. <laughs> because if there was, I probably wouldn't be a councillor now, <laughs> to be honest. But yeah, I suppose the thing that people, yeah, so uh, most people know me for my running, but I'm, my, my running goal is to join the 100 Marathon Club. Um, which at the moment I'm on 30 marathons. So I could do with someone to do a few for me to get me in there. But that's something else people probably don't know other than the council stuff. But I would still dearly love to get in the 100 Marathon Club. What piece of advice would you give to anyone considering standing as a councillor? Definitely come forward and, and definitely talk to people locally. You know, talk to local councillors, talk to a, a political party or not. You know, please come forward, please get engaged because, you know, as we were saying earlier, it needs a real mix of, you know, a real mix of talents and abilities. And don't come forward because you think there is an ability you, you don't have and it's stopping you because the council chamber is full of people with a massive range of abilities. And I'd include myself in that. There's some things I'm good at, there's some things I'm bad at. But it's the overall package, it's the overall contribution of what we all make together. And, yeah, please, please come forward and talk to someone. I was very fortunate because I, I was approached, you know, and lucky I was. And, and when you look at um, most councillors, they'll probably give the same story and say it was a friend of a friend or someone approached me. But if you feel impassioned, please come and approach someone is, is my advice because what you'll find in any political group, in fairness, is that there will be a very open door to talk and support people who, who feel that way. So, yeah, please come forward. And don't, don't be afraid, because if you, if you don't fully know what it's all about, that's someone's job to tell you and to help support you to see if it's the right thing for you. But just to even have that curiosity and enthusiasm, in my mind, is enough to say, please come forward. Finally, what hidden gem is there in your ward that you'd recommend the people of Peterborough should visit? 
Oh, great question. So we've got quite a few actually. Um, I do like the Chimes Coffee Shop is a particular <laughs> is a particularly good one. Um, if you've got children, full of beans is a godsend in Hempstead. Um, I'll take my two young girls there. It's great for young children, so I should say. So by definition, but yeah, we've got some we've got some amazing stuff in the ward, and, and most of the open spaces like walking, running, feeding the ducks. You know, we're we're lucky to live in such a really nice area of green spaces. Councillor Howard, thank you for joining me on the politics of Peterborough. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Councillor Howard for joining me. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get each episode as soon as it's released. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at PoliticsPBORO. Please let me know what you thought of the episode. If you have any suggestions as to who you'd like to hear on the show or any questions you'd like me to put to our guests, you can email us at politics.peterborough@hotmail.com. This episode of The Politics of Peterborough was created, hosted, recorded and edited by me. We'll see you next time. <laughs>